This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Hey, do you have it turned up to 11? <laughs> we also welcome our returning guest, comedian and host of Midnight Facts for Insomniacs, as well as the newest member of our five-timers club, Shane Rogers. Oh, thanks for having me, you guys. I am, I am honored to be here, honored to be a five-timer. Looking forward to my, is it a hat? Is that what's? Yes, it is a hat. Excellent. Thank you, guys. This is, yeah, this is, a, this is an honor to be here. Uh, always happy. I have the hat on, in. in fact. I know. It's a nice-looking hat. It's a good-looking hat. Yeah, I am glad that each of our new five-timers, as they've actually gotten the hat, they keep commenting on, oh, I thought it would be this, like, cheap, you know, easy snapback. No, these are nice, like, flex-form fit hats with individual stitching on them, so... You know, uh, maybe at some point in the near future, we'll get big enough so that we can actually sell them to people. But that is not you, my friend. You get a free one that will be sent to you in the next few weeks once I get back up by my dad and can send them to you. Awesome. Well, I actually, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I have a notoriously tiny head. And so I look ridiculous in all hats, except for children's hats. So I will wear it uh, <laughs> next time so you guys can be amused by how silly I look in, in one of your hats. But I mean, it's not the hat's fault. It's, it's, my, it's my anatomy. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. And uh, I know that we've now decided, or at least the money people have decided, that 10 is now the T-shirt, which are also very nice. Oh, nice. Yes, okay. Well, I have that to look forward to then. I can, you know, well, I'll have to keep coming back. And I think I'm still pushing for 15 to be a personalized clapperboard because 15 is a lot. I mean, five yeah. individually already for the hat was enough. But, you know, when you get to 15, you should have like a walk of fame almost status. Yeah. Clapperboard would be cool. That's 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 creative and, you know, appropriate for the for the topic. Well, definitely on brand with the logo. I'm thinking at least 20. We could do like a uh, an embroidered fleece jacket. Oh, that's a good idea. Well, I mean, since you are the money people, well, or half of the money people, I should say, uh, our most frequent guest is the other half of the money people. But uh, yeah, OK, whatever you guys want to do, I'm just pushing for those clapper boards. Yeah, technically, your mother owns a quarter of or not quite a quarter of the studio. So, OK, I still have what is it? Uh, my majority control. That's the word I was looking for. 51% because you said you didn't want to, if something happened to me, you never wanted to be equal partners with your mother. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God she doesn't listen to these. I'm definitely on board for a fleece. Uh, I'll have to come back until I can earn that one because I look significantly less ridiculous in a fleece. Well, and we always enjoy having you. And let's look quickly back down memory lane. As memory serves, you've been on now, this will be the fifth time, but any favorites out of the first four that you've been on? The first one was actually cool. It was obviously my first experience, and it was a movie that I hadn't seen before. I think I've 
since then, I've been able to kind of uh, choose movies that are personal favorites or that I had some connection to. Uh, and the first one was kind of cool in a way just because I sort of had to sit through a movie that I definitely wouldn't have watched otherwise and still is my least favorite of the movies that we've gone through. But I did get, you know, I did develop an appreciation for it. I think it was, um, was it broadcast news? Is that what my first one was, I think. And so that, you know, that has a little bit of nostalgia there for me. But then obviously, like I, the one with the most nostalgia, just because the movie brings nostalgia is uh, was Superman. So that was that was probably my favorite of the ones that we've done. Perfect. I know that that one got quite a bit of buzz when it came out last year. I know that you've been on also for our There's Something About Mary podcast and The Big Lebowski, which is a, a favorite of some of our core audience members uh, that I talk to regularly. So definitely some good stuff that we've gotten with you, and we continue to hope that you'll keep coming back. I know you said you wanted to get your fleece, but we're not trying to push you too far too fast if you don't want to. Oh, no, I always have a good time. And this is this is fun. And, and, you know, like we've been able to do some classics and some cult classics. And I'm excited about this one today because it definitely fits in that category. Oh, absolutely. And this is another one of those where like I didn't necessarily laugh at the lines as they were delivered. But reading them back for quotes, I was just laughing my ass off. I don't know why that is. This is like the third movie in the last, I think, calendar year where that's been the case, where I, it just didn't hit me right. But you read the lines and all of a sudden it just it kicks in for whatever reason. Yeah, I it's interesting to me because I, I've seen it so many times that watching it again this time, I, I don't think I laugh ever at it because I just I know what's coming. I know all of the lines, but I still just enjoy them on an intellectual level. It's just like the writing is great, even though I'm sure some of it was improvised. I mean, that's, you know, Christopher Guest's thing, but it's still just everything to me is just pitch perfect. And so, yeah, I'm not affected by it the way I used to be because again, it's just kind of worn off, but I still can at least appreciate what I'm watching. So that brings us to tonight for our 202nd episode. We discuss the Rockstar mockumentary from 1984. This is Spinal Tap celebrating its 40th anniversary next week. Written and directed by Rob Reiner, with music by and starring Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, and Harry Shearer. Additionally, we had Tony Hendra as Ian Faith, R.J. Parnell as Mick Shrimpton, David Caff as Viv Savage, June Chadwick as Janine Pettibone, Bruno Kirby as limo driver Tommy Pichetta, Ed Bagley Jr. as John Stumpy Peppis, Danny Korchmar as Ronnie Pudding, just, just a great name, Fran Drescher as Bobby Fleckman. Recognition for this movie? This is Spinal Tap was released on March 2nd, 1984. It would only make $4.7 million on a budget of $2 million, placing it roughly in the 127th place for 1984. The critics, however, lauded the film for its wit, humor, and its ability to make Spinal Tap feel like a real band. Even musicians felt it was true to their own experiences. In 2000, the AFI included it on their list of 100 Years 100 Laughs at number 29. In 2008, Empire Magazine ranked This Is Spinal Tap number 48 on its list of the 500 greatest films of all time, and the New York Times placed the film on their list of the best 1,000 movies ever made. In January 2010, Total Film placed This Is Spinal Tap on its list of the 100 greatest movies of all time. In 2011, Time Out London named it as the best comedy film of all time. 
In November 2015, the film was ranked the 11th funniest screenplay by the Writers Guild of America in its list of 101 funniest screenplays. Odd that it would give that kind of honor to a script that, for most intents and purposes, uh, was mostly ad-libbed. In 2002, This Is Spinal Tap was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. Since its release, This Is Spinal Tap has gone on to have many cultural references and influences within the movie and music industries, including the use of the term Spinal Tap specifically as a common insult for pretentious bands. In May 2022, director Rob Reiner announced that he is working on a sequel to the film, which will include him returning to play DeBerge and McKean, Shearer, and Guest as the members of Spinal Tap. The film will be Castle Rock Entertainment's first film following its revival in 2021. Filming is scheduled to start this month. This is Spinal Tap currently holds a 96% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 92 score on Metacritic, and a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So as we start every week, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? I actually saw this film. I didn't get to see it in theaters, but it was released on HBO, not by a lot of fanfare. I remember watching it as a lark because... I really liked Rob Reiner, and I really liked Michael McKeon from when he was on Laverne and Shirley. Mm. So I watched it and just went like, wow, this is great. And I remember going, and this what I think would have been about, was I in college? What year was this released? 84? 84. So yes, it would have been your sophomore year. Yeah, I was telling all my friends from that I would hang around with every once in a while on weekends high school yet. And then from my college friends, you need to watch this. Then I've seen it a few times since and then followed them because, and we'll get to this more on impact and significance, but this film saved Saturday Night Live. That's quite a statement. Yeah. It was close after the debacle when they got rid of the original cast and the secondary cast came on, which was predominantly Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo and everybody else was kind of not that good. Um, They were close to getting it canceled. And uh, Dick Ebersol had taken control of it directly. He brought Lauren Michaels back and Lauren Michaels said, well, we need to have somebody who can actually do more ad-libbing. And he pushed to get Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer on the show. He wanted Michael McKeon. He said no. And then Rob Reiner was involved in it, and he suggested Billy Crystal. And that pumped the uh, show back up into the prime ratings. I think it would have likely been canceled if not for the influx of the the members or the people involved with Spinal Tap. Interesting. I think my relationship is fairly minuscule. You had tried to show me this once probably about 15 or so years ago, maybe 20. And the (laughs) DVD that we got from family video was corrupted. So we only got through the first like 10 minutes. I remember it skipping out right before they were talking about the drummer dying and the circumstances surrounding that. So I didn't get much into the movie. So essentially I count this as my first full viewing of the film. I saw it really young. My mom's boyfriend showed it to me and didn't, tell me that it was like a mockumentary or at least I didn't understand that. And so I always, for a long time, I just thought this was a real band and that they were just funny and silly. And I was definitely too young to get, you know, 90% of the jokes and the humor. I just, I just found these guys to be very 
uh, entertaining. And it's funny because it's funny that I didn't make the connection. He was like Lenny or Squiggy. I don't remember which one on. Was he Lenny? Lenny. Yeah, he was Lenny. It's funny that I didn't make that connection because I definitely watched Laverne and Shirley when I was a little kid. So I don't know how I didn't notice that that guy was in, you know, suddenly had a British accent and was in a band. Uh, but yeah, I thought Spinal Tap was real for a long time and only then rewatched it when I was a and I had the soundtrack. The guy who showed it to me, I liked the music. I was kind of rocking along as a little kid and the guy ended up buying me the tape. I had the cassette tape of the soundtrack from when I was young and didn't realize that they were a joke band for many years and figured it out as a teenager when I watched it again. And yeah, it, I mean, this movie to me, again, just like Big Lebowski, like a couple other movies that we've talked about, just has a lot of nostalgia for me. It's one of my favorite films and had a huge impact on the movie industry as a whole, just kind of cementing the whole mockumentary style and, and you know, Christopher Guest. Uh, his entire cinematic universe kind of started there. So, yeah, I just love this movie, and I, I was really excited when I saw it as an option. Now, I have a few follow-ups. Now, is the soundtrack actually named after the movie, or is it Sniff the Glove? No, it's just called, it just says Spinal Tap on it. Yeah, it's, okay. it doesn't and have is it like, like an all-black cover, or is it somebody on all fours <laughs> sniffing a glove? You know, that's a good question. I remember what I remember is a picture of them. There's a picture of them on a minute, but that might be on the insert. Okay. So I'm not sure I had, I remember it had, you know, the, every tape you would take out the little cover and then it would like fold out. Right. And mm -hmm. there were pictures on the inside. So I don't remember which one was the cover. If it was just pure black, I would have to look at it. I, you know, I have it. I, honestly, it is somewhere in a box, <laughs> but it would say it would be hard to dig out, but I'm sure I still have it. I swear there's got to be like a Sherwin-Williams color that's no more black. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. None None more black. None more black. You're right. I, I stand corrected. <laughs> so what is the movie actually about? Is it about anything? I think, yeah, I think it's about a lot of stuff. I mean, I think, you know, you can, as with any movie, you can sort of look at it on a surface level. It's it's just about the silliness of a genre of music in some ways, even though they clearly have affection for it. And I mean, they wrote all this music and, and it's, it, it is passably believable as real rock, hard rock songs. And so I, you know, I think it could be just a send up of a genre of music because it's, I'm a big fan of heavy metal and rock and roll from, and, you know, hard rock from when I was a kid, but I also can acknowledge the silliness of it. So I think in some ways it's just a spoof of rock and metal and, and along with that, just taking yourself too seriously and how sort of self-serious that genre can be. I do think you know, on a deeper level, there's certainly more to it. I think, you know, it's it's about kind of coping with becoming irrelevant, like getting older and realizing that you're not what you once were. These guys are, you know, realizing that they're being rendered irrelevant by a music industry that is passing them by. And so there's a lot of sort of, as I get older, I appreciate a little more nuance of like, these guys are starting to age out of their demographic. And so, you know, I think there's there's a lot there under the surface, but ultimately it's just like a spoof of heavy metal. Now, I I entirely agree that it it is a satire of the bands that take themselves way too seriously and their specific musical gift to the world, if, if you will. Those that are so self-concerned with being, we have to have this purity of music and... Uh, 
all this other bull crap. <laughs> but I think simultaneously it's taking a jab at all the music fans, especially over the last few years when we've had all these musical biopics with Elvis and Rocket Man and uh, Bohemian Rhapsody that a lot, a lot of people love. I don't particularly find them that fascinating because you might as well just go watch a music video because that's really what all of its significant quality is. But that these biopics are done in concert with either the musicians or their estates, etc. And so they're just these like propagandist pieces of film specifically designed to make the music fans who worship them as these gods think of them even bigger than that. And I just, I think simultaneously they have to recognize these are people too. This is my generation. Okay. There's two parts to this, which is I used to hang around with a group of kids who were in high school that were kind of intellectual elitists. You're saying you're not one. Um, they were worse than me. Okay. Is that possible? Maybe I've, maybe like, I've gotten more. Because you pass it to me, and most people think I'm intolerable. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I've gotten worse as time has gone by. But part of that group actually happened to be uh, the editor of the high school newspaper that I knew well. And um, she actually ended up becoming a music critic and worked as the music critic or doing music reviews, I believe, for Vanity Fair. And subsequently wrote a book on women in rock and roll that was in the Sunday New York Times book of reviews. So she had a more opportune to be elitist as that. But they would sit around and they would determine that bands were no longer worth listening to based upon their level of popularity because then they sold out. I, I remember when originally uh, there was a big movement in Rockford, Illinois, when uh, a group of people got together and decided they were going to petition the Rolling Stones on their last tour, their last tour in 1980, because they were getting too old and they were going to break up. <laughs> uh, okay. And so they, they, they got them to agree to do a, a concert at, in the Rockford Forum, um, which was the smallest venue on their tour. And they sat around and decided at that point in time, the Rolling Stones were no longer worth listening to because they had reached a level of popularity that just meant that they sold out and were no longer good musicians. And so when I watched this film, I just thought this was like in your face, all of you morons who kept saying that music has to be judged based on how well it's received by the general public. And so I thought that was the basis of it. You do make some good points that it makes comments or makes fun of it, but it's in general, it's just people who take stuff way too seriously. What's the worst that happens if the band breaks up, what another band comes along. It's not like anybody's life is completely over or somebody dies as a result of it. You know, it's not pestilence, war and famine, except the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's just my take, because this came out about that time with, you know, when this, I was uh, 20, 21, I would have been 21 that that fall. Yeah, it's 40 years ago. Yeah. So what about the movie makes it feel like Spinal Tap is a real band? Well, first off, I mean, they, they wrote and played all their own songs, which is pretty impressive. You know, that's such an investment in a movie, like... 
you have to write a script. You have to, you know, obviously there's like a, a whole process involved in shooting a film. And then you have to create an album. Like that is, those are two hugely time intensive art forms. And they had to do both for this. And I think the music kind of speaks for itself. It's like all of the songs are fully realized when you listen to the album. It actually, you know, they have the songs from beginning to end. It's not like they just created little snippets for the rock videos and, and the and the cuts uh, in the film. You know, they created a, a full album and kind of a mystique for this band. And so I think it it does feel real. I mean, not only did they create an album, they went back and created like all of their songs from when they were younger right their their entire evolution as a band their flower child period and they're you know kind of i'm gonna you know i'm gonna cry 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 all the way home like this they're sort of a doo-wop period or whatever i mean they they went back and really created a lore for this band that probably a lot of it didn't even end up in the film but i think that they went out of their way to make it feel organic and like a real group yeah i i, I think that's one of the most impressive things about the movie for me well, they did a lot of situations where they took real situations from bands and then just one-upped it or mm. two-upped it or in some cases even three-upped it. I, I can't remember. I think it was Tom Petty did a rock album or rock film and he got lost in Australia and came up in in uh, like in a, on an indoor tennis court in the <laughs> film. And so Rob Reiner thought of that, and that was the basis of them, you know, like getting completely lost and making this long production of them not being able to find their arena. Mm -hmm. I know that's apparently happened to multiple bands that have confirmed that exact situation. And I know for a fact that, uh, why am I drawing a blank? Because you're 60? Yeah. I know there have been situations with like Alice Cooper because he has big sets and stuff where people got stuck in, you know, one of the set pieces or whatever. So, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of corollaries. I think there are plenty of bands have probably watched this. I was in a band for a long time, but we didn't we didn't have anything elaborate like this. But even, you know, just watching there are little kind of inside jokes for bands like watching the song where they all play bass like there's three guys up there playing bass and it's just kind of a silly thing that i think if you don't if you're not in music or don't understand you probably wouldn't even notice that three guys are playing bass so there there is a lot for i think touring bands probably have experienced a lot of that stuff and then even casual musicians or trying to play the guitar with a violin yeah <laughs> like kicking doing the with his foot on the other one yeah yeah, it was Steven Tyler. They were talking about Aerosmith doing a, uh, a film, a concert film. And Steven Tyler said, why? Spinal Tap did it the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I have to give them a lot of credit going back to the original comment by Shane that at least they sang their own music. There's no lip syncing. Mm -hmm. But yes, it, it's a lot of the little things that I think make people not realize that this is a documentary or I guess mockumentary, not a documentary. And they toured as a band. They did a, they did a Spinal Tap tour. They might have done more than one. But yeah, I mean, those guys can, can literally play all the songs live. So how has the mockumentary style used for the film become so popular over time? I know this is not necessarily the first, and I wouldn't even say it's the first musical mockumentary. Uh, I know that they have given a little bit of credit to A Hard Day's Night kind of being maybe one of the first ones, but 
obviously this style has adapted over time as we've gotten more sitcoms in this light. The two most notable being Modern Family and The Office. Yeah, I I mean, I'm not super familiar with other versions of this from before. A Hard Day's Night was kind of just a, well, I don't know. I mean, Beatles kind of spoof film, right? I, I mean, I it, this one is the first that I've seen or that I'm aware of that feels like a fully conceptualized mockumentary in the, in the style that we have today. It feels like it did right. kind of set a template. But again, a lot of the mockumentaries that are most famous are basically copies of Spinal Tap because they're Christopher Guest. I mean, once you get into Best in Show and A Mighty Wind, and he just kind of created a genre that he carved out for himself, and other people have dabbled in it and played in it, but I don't think that anyone has done it to kind of this perfection because he created the template for it, as he did. Yeah, I would say that for the most part, any of the modern film mockumentaries are more as a result of the the TV style than they are the other way around. I think they eventually took over this format and kind of popularized it more or less well after this movie was obviously made. But the ones that I think of the most are probably the Andy Samberg ones, the sports mockumentaries that he did on mm-hmm. HBO, or for that matter, uh, Pop Star Never Stop, Never Stopping. Never Stop Stopping, yeah. Which is just a, a classic underrated film. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think for the most part, though, that it it became a forum for people to utilize when they saw what could be done in this method or mat of madness. It became a way of organizing comedy or satire that uh, it just all of a sudden people realized how adaptive this style was to that type of entertainment. And I think it's taken off for the most part since. Well, I do think there is a note to the realistic portrayal of things being more satiristic. I, I know one of my probably my favorite TV show of all time is Parks and Recreation. And they're able to take a lot of popular national political themes and employ them in a documentary style within the course of the thing, but also at a local level. And so you're taking stuff that, for the most part, would be seen as a normal everyday activity. And by not, maybe with a wink and a nod, but not necessarily obviously saying to the audience, this is supposed to be fake. And by providing some level of at least grounded realism or attachment to realism, I think you're able to point out, oh, this could be about me. And so that gives it a little bit of extra edge that you wouldn't otherwise have. And I think that works really well for The Office, which obviously is supposed to be somewhat attached or grounded in its essence to everybody else working in an office situation, which is why I think as many people have connected with that show as as has over time and why it's so popular it allows you to have an explanation for what's going on without having to have a narrator the characters are their own narrators that's an interesting point it's kind of like in cartoons and one of the advantages of cartoons is you can see their thoughts by the uh by the bubble over their head so you just allow them to have their thoughts expressed through their commentary in the middle of this documentary or mockumentary. I think it also really allows a playground for actors, 
especially actors who are good at improvising. I mean, a big part of sort of the idea with this is you just take a trope, you know, whether it's dog shows or, you know, um, an office place or a, a, a heavy metal band, and you have these kind of iconic character types within it, and then you just let the actors go, and they can sort of play within you know, you know what is expected of a of a ridiculous rock god type guy, and you can kind of play within that. And so, I think it's really it's it's been a a genre that not only is appealing to the audience, but I think is really attractive to a certain type of actor and people in theater because it gives it gives you just an archetype to play with, and then within that, you sort of you know it's almost again like doing improv. You know, it's it's like an improv troupe. And so I think that's, it's not for every actor. There are a lot of actors that don't want to go off script and want everything to be very, um, you know, rigid. But if you're an actor who likes to play and sort of have some fun and have some freedom, this is a great way to do it. And so I think that's why it's also connected so much with the artistic sort of uh, theater community as well and been adopted. And there have been so many versions of this. So, Dad, are you ready to give us some more background on the film? Do you have our plot summary ready for us? I do. This is Spinal Tap is a mockumentary comedy film that follows the fictional British heavy metal band Spinal Tap on their disastrous and hilarious journey on a tour of the United States to promote their latest album, Smell the Glove. During their tour, they encounter a series of absurd and calamitous events, including botched performances absurd backstage antics, and a continually changing lineup of drummers who meet untimely ends. Through interviews with band members and behind-the-scene footage, the film satirizes the rock music industry, showcasing their absurdities and egos that often accompany fame and success. This is Spinal Tap is a cult classic known for its sharp wit, and memorable characters and iconic scenes that have solidified its place as one of the great comedies in cinematic history. Thank you. Did you know? IMDb normally allows users to rate films only up to 10 stars, but specifically for Spinal Tap, the site allows users to rate the film 11 stars, referring to the up to 11 scene. Did you know? Several rock stars have commented on what an uncannily accurate spoof of the rock and heavy metal world this film was. Ozzy Osbourne said, When he first watched the film, he was the only person who wasn't laughing. He thought it was a real documentary. U2 guitarist The Edge said, I didn't laugh, I wept. It was so close to the truth. Marillion had five drummers in the space of a year between their first two albums, which guitarist Steve Rothery later admitted was like Spinal Tap. Did you know? Rob Reiner originally was going to be one of the band members. He ended up directing after Harry Shearer said he didn't look good in spandex. Hmm. (laughs) Did not know that. (laughs) Yeah. Did you know? When Nigel rubs a violin against his guitar during his solo, it's a parody of Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page, who used a violin bow to play his guitar during many concert performances. Did you know? After the film opened, several people told Rob Reiner that they loved the film, but he should have chosen a more well-known band for the documentary. (laughs) And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. (laughs) 
Before we jump back into the episode, next week we're taking a break from our regular episodes to bring you our fourth annual Oscars preview. We'll be giving you our predictions for every category as well as our personal take on each category, finishing up with our best picture rankings and our annual Oscars bad movie bet. It's going to be another fun one, so make sure you are subscribed to our feed next week to get that episode wherever you get your podcasts. Dad, we left off at best performance. Who do you have down? I have Rob Reiner. I think he held the thing together by his directing and the how he kind of set the pace and the tone of the film for the most part. I think it was, I think that if I remember right, this was his directorial debut. Yes. And it was obvious from watching this that he had talent in that regard. So that's who I went with best performance. I also have him down. I know that you could go in many different directions with this one. And I don't think there's a wrong answer of the four primary people responsible for the movie. And yet I think I hold him in the most esteem because Due to his name, his connections, his previous acting history, it's most likely that he was the one who was able to get them funded and use those connections to actually get this movie off the ground. Because $2 million to make your first directorial film is a lot of money back in 1984. You would have needed somebody with some level of connection to be able to get something like this, even as modest as it was, off the ground. So I give him a little bit more credit I do think that he also provides a lot of the, I wouldn't say outtakes, but the bringing you out of necessarily the comedic and presenting a certain realism to it as an outside observer. His constant commentary through the course of the film brings you out of the normal band aesthetic into a little bit more of an interview style, and I do think that that adds to the comedy. Like his section reading the reviews is just uproarious, but you wouldn't get that if somebody like that character isn't present in this. You'd just get the kind of band infighting. And so I thought he really brought something that was different comparative to the other three primary members. I'm going to be super basic on this one, you guys, but I, and, you know, I guess that's a spoiler alert, but the two leads for me are the reason this movie works in, in my view. And I think my favorite character is Christopher Guest. I just think... You know, he and and just having seen him transform in so many movies, like he just really seamlessly kind of melts into the Nigel character. And he is, I think, the sort of linchpin of the movie. And then, you know, spoiler alert, like I said, it, to me, it's just the two leads. So for my second best performance, Michael McKean, I just think the two guys just have natural chemistry. They feel like long term friends who also have kind of a little bit of an undercurrent of rivalry and they just make it work so well that that's what makes this movie believable and hold together for me is those two guys. I don't think that's super basic. I mean, there's really four places that you could go with this, and those are two of the four options. I mean, I have Michael McKean as well for best secondary. I do think that him being, in a way, the front man, and he does kind of take the lead after a while when we have fewer of the Nigel cutaways with DeBerge, I think those end up kind of making the second half of the film. It's a little less sticky, but his constant conflict, not only with himself, but adding in the relationship with his girlfriend and then his constant fighting with everybody else as a result of that gives you at least some of the dramatic tension within the film 
that I think also adds to the realism, given that what we know about bands and bringing in relationships and outside people into how the band is operating. So to me, I think that that grounds it as well. So I gave him my best secondary, but he's also a very funny character on his own. We'll obviously get to a few of those moments here in lines when we get that far. For me, I have Christopher Guest as the best secondary performance. You know, I like Michael McKeon, but to me, Christopher Guest has a wider level of performance from the annoyed by uh, the girlfriend to uh, kind of being really the leader of the band, even though he's not the front guy. I just thought he had a much broader uh, level that he was working in the film. So I, I gave him best secondary and I'll go one further, which is I'm going to give him the most charismatic because not only did I think he did such a great job and became so much of a big star, he was so charismatic. He got Jamie Lee Curtis as a result of this because she saw him in the film and had her agent contact his agent and set up a date. And then they ended up married for the last 40, 35, 40 years. So I always had a, thing for Jamie Lee Curtis. So he of course gets <laughs> most charismatic because if he can get her, give him powers. So you have now expressed, let's say a uh, sex appeal for Jamie Lee Curtis, her mother during psycho. And uh, for that matter, touch of evil. So it's only a matter of time before you also engage in saying on the podcast that you are attracted to her daughter as well. So we can just go three generations. Have you seen the three daughters of Christopher Guest and Jamie Lee Curtis? No, you would say that in a heartbeat. They are absolutely gorgeous. All right. I'm Googling it now just for the sake of it. Uh, eh. Well, one is pretty good looking. I don't know if any of them are acting or not, but it would make sense if they were. I don't know. I mean, that that's one of those uh, multi-generational family type things that, uh, yeah, okay. Most charismatic for me, and I'm going to go with a deep cut on this one. I have Harry Shearer, but it's for a weird reason. Because as he announces in the middle of the film, he is the neutral guy in between the two leads. He's kind of the the lukewarm water. And to me, that entire role and the way he plays it reminds me of another character from a favorite British TV show, Baldrick from Blackadder. Hmm. <laughs> so I don't know how many people that I've just alienated by mentioning <laughs> Baldrick from Blackadder, but... I loved that show. It's my favorite Rowan Atkinson thing. I really wish that he would do less Mr. Bean and more Blackadder, just personally. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with Michael McKeon. I think just being the front man of the band, he sells it. He comes across as a, as a legitimate, believable front man. Obviously, Christopher Guest has kind of a little bit more of a, as Nigel has a, a little bit more of a subdued demeanor, and uh, Michael McKeon is allowed to kind of be a little bit more boisterous and uh and really show off that that leading man energy on stage and it just he sells it he feels like he could be a, a rock god up there and so i felt like he was most charismatic all right let's move to best scene then 
I only nominated five, so I gave you guys some opportunities to throw a few in there. And there aren't a lot of like long scenes in this one. There are a few, but I think you have a lot of different choices. I went with the top five that were the most memorable for me. I have History of Taps Drummers, so the early portion when he's interviewing them, and we'll get to that in quotes for obvious reasons. Then I have the explanation of the cover of Smell the Glove. Again, we'll get to some of that in quotes. I have The Hallway Maze. I have Stonehenge. And I have Jazz Odyssey. What did I miss? Those are all good. For me, it's not even a, a contest. My most indelible memory for this from this movie will always be Stonehenge. Just and it. I said that last <laughs> night when I rewatched it, I hadn't laughed out loud because I knew everything and could anticipate everything. But that's not true. I'm realizing like I still laugh when that little when that little Stonehenge thing starts coming down and Michael McKean turns and the look on his face, seeing it come down. And then the little, you know, the little person who comes and dances around and it just, it's just so bonkers. That scene is perfection. It's one of the funniest th- scenes in cinema, in my opinion. And so, yeah, it's, I, I mean, I, I was going to bring that up before I even, you know, read, read the notes. So yeah, to me, that's the only option. It's definitely my favorite scene. It's my most indelible moment. I don't necessarily think it's the best scene because it's a, an easy sight gag, but it's mm-hmm. the one that works the best. For best scene, I had the history of Taps Drummers because that's like a through line throughout the movie. So expositionally, you have a really good opening. And then I obviously, I will be bringing several of those moments up with quotes, but the explanation just keep getting weirder and weirder. It is classic and it is, it's almost not even just one scene because like you said, they intersperse it, but it is, it is so well-placed and everything in that, in that interview is great. Well, the demise of drummers and British rock bands in general. I mean, I, you know, I grew up as a big fan of Genesis. Phil Collins was their fourth or fifth drummer yeah, and their first three or four albums, you know, and then he's the only one who's stuck, but. No, you missed an you missed one, and this is the one that I have used and made comments and jokes about for years, and that is the airport security seat. The number of times I've been traveling with somebody and they're and they go off going through the gate, and I turn to them, friends of mine or somebody, and say, <laughs> "Do you have a do you have a cucumber in your pants?" <laughs> yeah. That's good. And, the, you know, the only other one that I would mention that I don't think you mentioned is the tour of the guitars, which I think, you know, has a, certainly one of the most famous quotes of the movie that we'll bring up soon. And then there are just so many moments where he's, you know, this one, the sustain just goes on. Ah, you can still hear that one. And, you know, don't even look at this note. Just walk away. Don't even look at this one. Like those, that entire scene, especially for people who are into who are good I, I play guitar and so for people who are into guitar but i think that's just that scene it just it's a scene that keeps giving and the more you watch it kind of the more you pick up and people always make references to it don't even point at it yeah don't even point at it at least somebody that tom knows my friend uh bob puckett may he rest in peace going through the airport he went off and i said do you have a cucumber in your pants and he just fell over and he was calling me every effing thing he could think of because he couldn't stop laughing. And of course, TSA is not amused. <laughs> well, the obvious answer there is you have to say no, but we have armadillos in our trousers. 
That's another <laughs> another classic one. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so that's my most indelible. That's my not my best. I have the hallway maze is my best scene. Okay. For the explanation of the drummer demises, I have the gardening accident on there for quotes, but <laughs> I don't have because it would have been way too long, but he is fixated on someone else's vomit. Yeah. <laughs> and of course you can't really dust for vomit, which is a line that I've, I don't know how I've worked that into conversations, but I've said it so many times. <sighs> okay. I said my favorite scene, uh, dad, what was yours? Stonehenge. All right. So that's three for three. Yeah. And most indelible moment was also Stonehenge for everybody? Yep. No, I have the maze. Oh, oh okay. Or no, excuse me. I had, I just said that. No, I had the, um, I had the cucumber because that's the minute, the minute you said we were going to do this film, that was the first scene that came to mind. All right. So that takes us to our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, Releasing at the beginning of March, friend of the show Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast and I are back with our special monthly series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month, we're covering the Guardians of the Galaxy from 2014. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. First, we have Joanna von Kozen, 90, German actress. She was in Victoria, or Victor and Victoria, The Marriage of Mr. Mississippi and Our House in Cameroon. Lanny Flannery, 81, American actor, Miller's Crossing, Signs, and Men in Black 3. Paul D'Amato, 76, American actor, was in The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and Slapshot. Only one of which we've covered on this show before, and it is not The Deer Hunter. To me, Slapshot is more entertaining than The Deer Hunter, although The Deer Hunter obviously is a better film. The Deer Hunter is a better film, but yes, I would agree Slapshot is more entertaining. So we remember these fondly for their contributions to the arts with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. And now we desecrate their memory with the poor British accent and Rob Reiner impersonation I'm about to do. First one up, Nigel Tufnell. The numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board, 11, 11, 11, and oh, I see. And, and most amps go up to 10? Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it, is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most blokes, you know, will be at playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, all the way up. You're here on 10 on your guitar. Where can you go from there? Where? The Horrible. Just awful. <laughs> so whoever would like to bring some uh, sanity back to the podcast. <laughs> Which begs the question, on what day did the Lord create Spinal Tap? And couldn't he have rested on that day, too? <laughs> Uh, David St. Hubbins, he died in a bizarre gardening accident. Nigel thought he said, uh, let's leave it uh, unsolved. Nigel, 
It's part of a trilogy. A musical trilogy I'm working on in D minor, which is the saddest of all keys I find. People weep instantly when they hear it, and I don't know why. It's very nice. You know, just simple lines intertwining, you know, very much like I'm really influenced by Mozart and Bach. And it's sort of in between those, really. It's like a, a mock piece, really. It's sort of a, what do you call this? Well, this piece is called Lick My Love Pump. <laughs> the problem is that there was a Stonehenge monument on stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. <laughs> Uh, David St. Hubbins it's such a fine line between stupid and uh, Nigel clever yes uh, yeah clever it's like how much more black could this be and the answer is none none more black the David St. Hubbins quote uh, it's not your job to be as confused as Nigel Ian Faith the Boston gig has been cancelled St. Hubbins what? Ian yeah, I wouldn't worry about it, though. It's not a big college town. <laughs> that one brought an audible laugh to my mind because I forgot that line. Uh, yeah, like, I had to. What actually. is it, like seven colleges in Boston? Mm-hmm. And the most famous ones. All right. I, I can't subject the audience anymore to my uh, accent work, but Marty DeBerge, David St. Hubbins. I must admit, I've never heard anybody with that name. It's an unusual name. Well, he was an unusual saint. He's not very well-known saint. Oh, there actually is, a, there, there was a St. Hubbins? That's right, yes. What was he the saint of? He was the patron saint of quality footwear. <laughs> I had that one on my list. <laughs> oh, just, that one caught me so <laughs> I actually, this one I don't think is on like any lists or anything, but it made me it kind of chuckle last night, and I'd sort of forgotten about it, where she says, uh, she calls the album cover sexist, uh, Fran Drescher does, and he says, what's wrong with being sexy? <laughs> uh, yeah. Go ahead, Dad. I'm out. I, uh, well, oh, I you're, you're out? I mean, I have one last one, which is Nigel. In ancient times, hundreds of years ago, before the dawn of history, an ancient race of people, the Druids, no one knows who they were or what they were doing. Doing. I made a reference to it earlier, but the uh, we've got armadillos in our trousers. The size, it's really quite scary. They run screaming. <laughs> to Bergie, let's talk about your reviews a little bit. Regarding Intervenus de Milo, this tasteless cover is a good indication of the lack of musical invention within. The musical growth rate of this band cannot even be charted. They are treading water in a sea of retarded sexuality and bad poetry. Nigel. That that's nitpicking, isn't it? <laughs> nitpicking. <laughs> I think uh, one of the classics has to be "Have a good time all the time." Debergi, the review you had on Shark Sandwich, which was merely a two-word <laughs> review, just said "shit sandwich." <laughs> <laughs> they can't print that, can they? <laughs> I think I'm out. I could probably keep going if I. I would have one left, and that's. Bobby Fleckman, you put a greased naked woman on all fours with a dog collar around her neck and a leash and the man's arm extended out up to here, holding onto the leash and pushing a black glove in front of her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? You don't find that sexist? This is 1982, Bobby. Come on. That's right. It's 1982. 
excuse me, if I'm going to do full accent, that's right. It's 1982. Get get out of the 60s. We don't have this mentality anymore. Well, you should have seen the cover they wanted to do. It wasn't a glove. Believe me. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a hood ornament? Sure. Come on. You know what I'm talking about. It's an inside joke. I, I don't know what you're talking about, but that's all right. I had a, I had a first case I ever had as an attorney. Oh, the guy, the guy okay. Came now in I get what he was you're... upset. He was upset because uh, he owed money to a guy and he he uh, ended up beating him up because he came over and glued an 18 inch dildo to his hood of his car with super glue. Said if I was going to be a dick about owing him money, he, I should drive a dick mobile. All right. Now I understand where you were coming from with that. Yes. The minute you said the it was like one of my first cases. Now I got you. Okay. I knew at that point in time that I'd picked the right career. (laughs) All right. Let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Dad, do you want to go first or second? I'll actually go first. I'm going to give for the industry a perfect five. Because as I indicated, uh, Saturday Night Live was about dead. Uh, until they they recruited, you know, now if you listen, Harry Shearer was only on for half of a season before he told Lauren Michaels to fuck off and leave because he hated him so much. But still, if it wasn't for Christopher Guest and then ultimately bringing in Billy Crystal tied to this, I think that show would have been off. And it was after that that they they went back and found a bunch more of the, the next generation, which included Dana Carvey and... Uh, I'm trying to remember who else was in there. Um, uh, Michael Myers. Michael Myers and all of those guys. Otherwise, that show would have been gone. And that show is continuing to survive but for this. Not to mention the fact that this became a vehicle that so many other movies and television programs seem to follow this mockumentary aspect. Not to mention also that this proved that Rob Reiner could direct a movie. And Rob Reiner went on a, after this on a series of films over the 1980s and 90s. A that, streak. Yeah. That you look at that list of films. If I would love to have an opportunity to just talk to him one time and just go, did you ever think as you were doing these as to the fact that you ran a series of films that most directors could not have achieved over a 30 or 40 year period and you did them in about a decade yeah it was what princess bride when harry met sally spinal tap there was there's so here's the here's the run consecutively this is spinal tap then he did the sure thing which okay fine but his real run starts with stand by me princess bride when harry met sally misery a few good men he does a movie called North that I've never heard of. And then his last one that I would say is of like huge repute, the American president. Yeah. Then he's got a bunch of stuff that like has kind of really fallen off. The only notable one since then is probably the bucket list. But even so that I think that's. I mean, some of literally the greatest movies of all time, princess bride stand by me when Harry met Sally spinal tap are in the pantheon. I mean, those are some of the greatest movies ever made. I think A Few Good Men might be the most watched cable movie of all time if it's not Shawshank, and it's probably the first one everybody thinks of of a courtroom drama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to have Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and A Few Good Men, that might be 
competitive with uh, when we're talking about four movies back to back to back like that with Hitchcock's 1958 through 63 run. For the public, I only gave it a three. And it's in large part because I think the public who, if you're over 50, you lived this film and really loved the film and enjoyed the film and immediately go, yeah. If you're under 50, most people have never heard of it. In fact, again, our little straw poll in my office staff, which is a a little microcosm of American society for central Wisconsin, Midwest, uh, all predominantly Caucasian, but nevertheless, no, they'd never heard of it. So I went with a three overall, so an eight. So I think you've convinced me. I was originally at a 4.5 for the audience, but I'll even throw in something you didn't have. And that's Shearer going over to what is possibly the most successful animated show of all time in The Simpsons and his contributions towards that, which he wouldn't have gotten except for this movie. So you throw in a few things where these guys have obviously had a lot of comedic connections, made themselves into something much bigger as a result of this movie. And even though in the moment it didn't have that kind of immediate impact in a box office sense, this movie has been highly influential. So I'll go to your five on the audience, though, it's a limited name ID. Those that have heard of it likely have also seen it, at least from our straw polls when we did them on Twitter recently. And I think on Instagram, it was a lot of people that for the most part, if they've heard of the movie, they instantly recognized it. they'd seen it. And so we do have some of that backing, but there's only really one significant pop culture moment that has resonance beyond the film itself. And that's going to 11. So I agree with you. I also had a three. I have an eight. Yeah. I'm kind of right with you guys. Uh, definitely a five for the industry. And then for audience. Yeah. I mean, I think like you said, there is a demographic for whom it really resonates and, 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 you know, they kind of, people will start throwing quotes at each other and, you know, you, you know, that someone of that, age and that demographic is going to have seen it. But I agree that I think, you know, I'm thinking about like my workplace. And if I'd walked around and asked the people I work with, many of whom are kind of younger in their 30s and 20s. Yeah, I don't think any of them would, would know this movie. And it maybe not even get the, any of the references or quotes. And they wouldn't know how much of what they have watched and, and seen and liked was inspired by it. So I, I would agree, I'd probably go let me go a little bit higher. I'd probably do a 3.5 for audience just because there are a lot of, there are still a lot of people my age out there, but yeah, I think 8.5 is where I'd go. So that's an 8.17 average between the three of us. Impact and significance. We already mentioned that this has a relatively low box office for the time that it came out. I would say if you're, counting on any industry backing at the time it has more to do with everybody's influence after the fact so if you're talking about their five-year run after this obviously by the time we get to the five years rob reiner's now done stand by me princess bride and he's about to release when harry met sally so i think those are some iconic films he's become more of an a-list director then you go on to, obviously, the SNL connection, the Harry Shearer connection, going on to The Simpsons, which started in 1989. 
you're you're talking about at least an, a little bit higher industry than you would think just purely from the box office at the time. But I think part of the box office is also due to the lack of probably budgeting that they had for marketing. There wasn't a lot where they could show this in a lot of theaters or get it licensed in a lot of theaters unless it was a word of mouth type of thing. So I think eventually this getting onto like an HBO or eventually hitting the VHS kind of era, renting videos, this became a much bigger deal. I don't know whether that's within that immediate five-year period. It is somewhat of a cult movie, so I can't give it full points on that. So from an industry side of it, I'm going to go with a four, and from an a audience side of it, I'm going to go with a two. I have a six. Yeah, honestly, again, I'm kind of on the same page. I think that, yeah, I agree with everything you said. Probably, again, I'd still go a little higher on the audience side. You know, I'm going with a maybe a three, so I'd go with a seven. For me, uh, industry, again, I'm, I'm kind of looking at this and going, yeah, it's within that five-year window. Guest was on Saturday Night Live. He started his kind of run for his production. Harry Shearer, Rob Reiner. I originally thought it was a three, but I'm going to go up to your four, Tom, after having rethought it. And for industry, right? Yes. For public itself, this was really big on HBO. I mean, HBO, I'm a child of HBO. I mean, I grew up, that was what the vehicle was, where if you hadn't seen a film in theaters, and not everything was passed around. I mean, I've lived my entire life in Wisconsin, uh, for the most part, and um, not everything gets around here. I mean, we're kind of remote. But HBO gave you opportunities to see things, films, television, programming, etc., documentaries, that were not seen other places. And I think there was a lot of places in the United States that was of similar ilk. And it got very popular. And you could tell the popularity of a movie or documentary by the fact that it would would run for four to six weeks, then it would be gone. And if it came back, that meant that there was a demand for it. I think Spinal Tap, if I remember right, had like three or four runs over a period of a year, which meant that this is something that word of mouth kept saying people wanted to see. And if they hadn't seen it before it stopped its run on HBO, it came back again. I think this came became much bigger. I'm going to go with a 2.5 for that, so 6.5 overall, just on the HBO. HBO and also video. I mean, if I, I would go into video stores, and this was always on the like recommended staff picks or whatever, <laughs> and always in kind of the the you know they would always have multiple copies, and a lot of times it was out. I mean, it just it, it was a very big. You know, if you can say something is a very big underground thing, this was that it and it and it really kind of blew up over time. Um, you know, there, there have been movies like that. I mean, the Shawshank Redemption, where it just it didn't do well in the theaters, but has become, a, a you know, a, a megalith going forward. And it really picked up momentum and steam. And so I think it's I think it's that's why I'm saying for me, I think it's a little bit bigger than we're giving it credit for. But I do understand where you're coming from. Let's head over to novelty then. Shane, would you like to lead? Remind me, so for novelty, are there two separate? I think I've kind of started to adopt something similar to that, but no, there's not officially any separate category or like division in this score. 
So just up to five. Yes, or up to 10. Or up to 10. Okay, well, I mean, it's interesting because I don't, I guess I don't know enough about the history of mockumentaries. This was the first mockumentary that I'm just aware of being in this format. And I know that there, you know, that there were some predecessors, obviously, who wasn't completely inventing the wheel, but certainly was at least reinventing the wheel and making the the first real mockumentary as we know it today, almost to a T with a lot of things that you see. It, it I think if the if the music were updated a little bit, if the maybe video quality were updated a little bit, this would still look like a very current version of a mo- of a mockumentary. To me, that's that's really innovative. You know, the, this was again kind of blazed a trail that still is really really popular, and I guarantee you'll see you know more versions of this coming out soon. And also, just you know, the end the Christopher Guest run of movies that that has its own cult following. So I'm going to go with a nine for that. So it's similar to a lot of my thoughts on this one. It's the first, I would say, popularized mockumentary, depending on your mileage of Hard Day's Night, which obviously was popular in its time, but doesn't really adopt this same style. It was obviously a wink and a nod at the time that it was made, but I wouldn't say that it, it's like a true rock documentary or rockumentary, if you will. But the movie does look a lot like the band documentaries that I've seen of live clips of like journey or Led Zeppelin or, you know, any of the big bands from the the seventies and such. And I do think this is somewhat of a unicorn film. We don't have a lot of musical documentary fakes or mockumentary types. The only thing that I would really knock this for just because I've held execution out as something that goes into the novelty of it how well does it do at its time due to its low budget it does have a few moments that i would say aren't necessarily at the highest it could have been not necessarily the film's fault but just a product of what it was at the time that it was made so i have also a nine well for me i thought about it and and it's really a film that i could not find anything that was a real predecessor. It took an area of film but transformed it into something that was comedic and satirical that had never been really done before. And while I had a certain desire to go with like a 9.5, simply because you both made good points and I'm going to assist Tom with the math, I'm going to just go with a straight 9. So that should make it easy for you, Tom. Well, you made the last category easy by giving me the average with a 6.5. So you've made this one easy, too, with a 9. Classicness. Dad, I will clear out for you. Generally, the way we've been doing this is it's been you know kind of starting with a 7. The sheer fact that we have an entire scene of Fran Drescher pointing out the sexism and just horrible way rock musicians had been treating women for decades. And this being done in 1984 in and of itself deserves at least a point or point and a half higher. So I would normally say that I'm at about an eight and a half or nine, but then to go to the fact that this is pretty much a testosterone driven movie, which, you know, you're criticizing the genre for being testosterone driven and then you make a film that is testosterone driven kind of 
mutes the point. So I'm going to go with classing this at 8.5 overall simply because of the fact that it didn't follow its own lead. So I'm, again, of similar mind to a lot of the points you've made. One of the places that I would go a little bit further than you did in how I've always viewed classicness, the thing I mentioned at the top of the show with the more self-serious musician biopics that are crafted in conjunction with these artists, this feels much more fresh that pops the facade of the pedestal raising that we've had for these kinds of people before, particularly the really famous musicians. Again, they are just people too. And so thus I give it points for being somewhat ahead of its time, being able to kind of undermine what I feel to be a newer genre that I'm not really interested by. The other thing I will say, and I've always mentioned this when we do comedies for classicness, the jokes still work pretty well. So in addition to the points that you've already made and such, I would have it up at a 10, except for one critical point, and which is why I knock it back down a point to a nine. Where is rock music anymore? The thing that I have to knock this for is, is that it's for a genre of music that just is not very popular anymore. Is this going to relate to people that are younger than me that are all hip hop all the time or even do the R&B type stuff? I just don't see rock music as in vogue with the culture at large as it used to be. And thus with its place, you know, how much has this movie aged because it's based on stuff that was popular in the 70s and 80s and just isn't necessarily a form of music that most people relate to or understand why these jokes would be the way that they are unless you had that cultural upbringing in the past. So I have a nine. I don't know that I agree. I see where you're coming from. I don't think that young people today, although they're not familiar with Spinal Tap, I don't think they wouldn't be familiar with rock music. I mean, rock music is part of the fabric of our culture, even if it's being mocked. You know, Guitar Hero is still a popular video game. Like it literally, they have different bands on it. But I mean, the idea of like the lead guitar player who's out there, you know, rip shredding a solo and like flame coming up. I mean, you know, so much of it has been sort of um, it's still there still are rock stars out there. I, I, you know, Pink has a song not that long ago where she says, I'm still a rock star. Like the idea of a rock star and rock music it is not what it used to be, but I think that even kids, even little kids are aware of it. And so I don't think that it's lost. It certainly is of the time. It's it's obviously a, a snapshot of a kind of music and a, and a particular time, but I don't think that it's unrelatable to now. I do agree that they also really managed to do a send up and and make fun of the testosterone elements of it. I think that even the testosterone elements that sort of are included in the movie are there to be mostly funny. I mean, the the movie I do I, I think the ultimate thing for me is what you said toward the end of that, which is the jokes still work. And that's for me. Again, maybe for some people they wouldn't, but I do have, you know, again, I sort of think about my my coworkers and younger people that I know. And, you know, none more black is just funny. It's just a funny line. Like it doesn't matter where, whether you know the context of that kind of music or 
anything. I think a lot of, you know, the Stonehenge is a hilarious scene, whether <laughs> you, you know, whether you remember rock music at that time or not, that's still funny. And so getting lost under a stage is funny, even if you don't know that they, you know, that that was a thing that used to happen. And I'm sure it still does. We still have, you know, if you are, a, I don't know, if you're Taylor Swift, I'm sure you've still gotten lost under one of your you know, huge stadiums. So all of this still feels relatable to me. It felt still really fresh watching it. I, th- I think that it still would go over. I'd go with a 9.5 on classicness. Well, that'll make the math easy. It's a nine average between the three of us. Ooh. I will mention, though, that the uh, pink song you're referring to is So What from 2008. So that's over 15 years ago. <laughs> it is a while ago, but I mean, anyone <laughs> who nowadays, uh, again, like... <laughs> We still refer to people as rock stars. That is still something that you hear. You hear like, you know, that person is is a rock star. I don't know any child these days who hasn't like played Guitar Hero and doesn't. It, it's it's crazy. If you go on TikTok, I mean, there are these young people playing like solos from Eddie Van Halen and stuff now. I mean, guitar has made a huge resurgence. I just, I think we swim in a sea of culture and people just know this stuff. I, every teenager I see has a Nirvana shirt on. Like it's, it's not like culture has stopped and people only listen to the things. There's something retro and cool now about that. Like, and you know, my era was not Led Zeppelin, but I know of Led Zeppelin. You know, I grew up understanding classic rock of my generation and the classic rock of, of the new generation is like hair bands. I mean, you know, I've listened to what they call classic rock stations now, and it has Def Leppard and Bon Jovi are played on classic rock stations. And so I don't think kids don't know about classic rock. Well, I mean, that is technically 40 years ago. So if that's not classic, I don't, I don't know what it would have been because classic rock in the 90s would have been only the stuff from the 70s when you're talking like Elton John and Led Zeppelin. So, you know, okay, fine. But by the same time period... Wasn't it last year that we had the Workday commercial that was you're a rock star and they kept ha- bringing out old trotted out rock stars to basically <laughs> counteract it? And it was like yeah. Billy Idol and one of the guys from Kiss and I can't even remember. But it was all it was the like Paul really Chris. washed up people yeah. that yeah were hadn't been relevant for like 30 some years. And I, I'm like, <laughs> this is only a commercial Ozzie. for people that are like 50 and older. No, because people, they, their kids know of the, their kids listen to that stuff because they listen to it. I mean, I didn't listen to, I don't, I wasn't around when Led Zeppelin was like big and playing or Jimi Hendrix, you know, he was dead long before I was listening to music, but I knew of that stuff because my parents played it. And because, you know, it was cool to be into at that time. There is no kid out there right now over 10 years old who doesn't know what a rock star is. I just, I just, I cannot buy that. I'm sorry. Having having thought about this situation, you know, given my age and history, there's like pivot points or there's like seminal moments in music where it becomes a big deal and then it kind of morphs into different stuff. The 1930s and 40s, we had the big bands, but they were really taken from the 20s jazz. And then the jazz, they continued and had singers and whatever but even they kind of related because certain portions were the ones that influenced early rock musicians like jerry lee lewis who went to the beatles and on and on so yes i understand and they're still going to have rock stars 
But I'm finding, for example, rock stars are either the rock stars from 20 years ago or older. I mean, we're talking about the fact that Roger Daughtry is doing a tour right now. Daughtry. He's like uh, almost 80 from The Who. But by the same token, if you listen to most of today's country music, it sounds like the Western uh, version or the California rock stars, the Eagles, uh, Journey, the groups that were out there in California, only with a little bit more of a twang to them. So, And the inclusion you, of a truck. Yeah. Usually a divorce or... Sorry Mama. to minimize country music. Yeah. But anyway, so it kind of matriculates into this broader area. And well, thank so now you, I'm, Hank Stram. So I'm kind of curious to see what will end up happening ultimately to the where, where music's going to be in the future. But, for example, kids who are wearing Nirvana shirts, how many of them realize who Dave Grohl is and where he is now and that he was the drummer for Nirvana? But that's my point is that you don't have to know the intricacies of it. I mean, you know, we can all watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That's a send up of of King Arthur. Right. But we all know about castles. We all know about knights. We all we can all laugh at that. You can show, you know, a young person Monty Python, and the Holy Grail. They might not connect with it as much just because of the quality of the production, but they can certainly get the jokes because they know what a knight is. They know what the Middle Ages were. And there's no kid. I'm just saying, I guarantee you guys, I'm sorry. Like there are not kids out there who don't know what rock stars and lead guitarists are. Like it's just, it's part of the culture that we live in. It's part of the, the zeitgeist that we all kind of move through on a daily basis. Everyone knows that. So they might not connect to it in that way, but they're certainly not going to be like, what is this? <laughs> they're going to know what it is. They're going to understand yeah. rock, rock bands. I don't think my criticism was quite to the extent of that it would be uh, as foreign an object as the monolith from 2001 A Space Odyssey, but <laughs> point taken. <laughs> yeah. Let's move to rewatchability or we'll be here another hour on this this one point. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, Shane, do you want to lead us off here? Oh, I mean, for me, I've seen it so many times. And I, again, it doesn't hit the way it used to. It, it just can't. I know everything that's coming. But it's still entertaining. I still enjoy watching it, even though I anticipate the jokes and the lines. They're still funny. And there is always something new that I catch uh, going through it. So for me, rewatchability is a 10. And that's just, again, I, we end up with a lot of these because you guys let me choose the movie that I come on. So I'm going to choose movies that are that are close to my heart. And uh, this is one of the most rewatchable films of all time for me. That's okay. It balances us out. Applying our more modern test, let's say, my likelihood of putting this on again of my own volition, it's probably directly square in the middle. I don't know if I would have ever come to this had I not put it on the schedule, and I'm not sure what the impetus would be necessarily for me to put it on again, because while I did enjoy it, it's not like something that I feel I need to go back to right away. So I would say it's about a 2.5 to put it on but once it's on, if I find it somewhere, especially because it's not a very long movie, I think it's 80 minutes, 85 minutes max. Um, yeah, sure. It's pretty breezable. Like the the editing in this keeps it pretty flowing. And I only found a couple of moments where I, I felt like there was some kind of downtime with it. 
So I'll I'll say about a three and a half for that. I have a six. For me, this is a film that I, I kind of regret not having watched in a while because there's so much. Sometimes just the situations themselves are funny. It's not like you have to remember the scenes or the lines. It's just you watch this, and my wife and I talk about the fact that we like to be people watchers. We would go on, when our vacations, we would go on cruises and just kind of look around and see things and comment because you would see situations and you'd kind of laugh about certain things. Like one cruise we were on, it was obvious that these guys were both in their, in their early 70s and they had these 30-something women who were basically there because it was obvious that they were going to get a free cruise if they just said yes to go along. The guys had a much different expectation than the girls did. And so we just, by the sheer situation, thought it was funny. We would see them all over on the cruise ship this way. So it's sometimes just sitting and watching that. And you don't have to be isolated that you can't remember the lines in order to watch this and enjoy it. So I'm going to give it points higher than I normally would on rewatchability, simply because Every time I watch this and see some of the way it's done and the circumstances, I think it is funnier almost just seeing it and thinking about the absurdity of the situation than of actually the lines involved. So I'm going to go with a 7.5 for rewatchability. This is something I should put on on a regular basis if I should. And so I'll go with that. And the one thing that I forgot to mention for me, and this is just personal, but I enjoy the music. The music to me, I grew up having the soundtrack. I think it's super fun. I know all the songs. And so that's another reason. Like I can literally just put it on and I'll like sing along to Big Bottom and, and Heavy Duty. <laughs> these are fun songs yeah. for me. So Hell Hole, like these, these songs are just enjoyable. When I learned to play guitar, my guitar teacher at the time would bust into spinal tap songs it was always fun for guitar players to like you know we, we would do that on um on stage be, during shows during like sound checks and sometimes right in between songs you would just throw in like a spinal tap riff and see who caught it and uh so i that's another reason it's rewatchable for me is because the music to me is really fun so that's going to be a 7.83 between the three of us for audience score, we had an 88% for Google users and a 92% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 9 overall. So to recap the categories, we had an 8.17 for Legacy, a 6.5 for Impact Significance, a 9 for Novelty, 9 for Classicness, a 7.83 for Rewatchability, and a 9 score for Audience, giving us a final total of... 49.5, and currently placing it on our list between The Third Man and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hmm. Boy, not like you could find three uh, more common films. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I can't believe I, I somewhat predicted this about two minutes ago, saying The Monolith and 2001 A Space Odyssey, and then it places just one higher than that. Yeah. Coincidence? I think not. Or maybe it was. I don't know. Anyway, if you disagree with any of our scores or have any commentary for us, good, bad, or otherwise, please write us at 
greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com or find us on YouTube, Instagram, X, Letterboxd, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. Let's move to remaining questions. I have none. And whatever remaining questions I could probably come up with will likely be answered by the sequel. Any remaining questions for either of you? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think everything. I, I am interested to see how the sequel works out. Uh, so that's the big question is what are they, how is this even going to be a thing? But, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to it. My biggest question with the sequel would simply be if it's focused on Spinal Tap itself or if they are consultants for a band that's up and coming, like they're producers now or they run their own studio or how this exactly their influence is going to work. Because if they're the subject of it and it's a direct sequel, I'm not sure that works quite as well. Yeah. All you need to do is, is it, it should be the band broke up. They're offered a ton of money to come back together. And it's the whole concept of them trying to come back. And all they have to do is follow the formula established already by Pink Floyd and just follow that dumpster fire and show how horrible it would be. You could just follow that and make it hilarious. I was going to say, if you have them so that Nigel and David won't even come on the stage together, they have to <laughs> enter from opposite sides. And they're and they just have to like have their lawyers. Feud. Yes, they have to have their lawyers discuss which songs they're going to perform. No, the only way that that <laughs> works then is if uh, Harry Shearer's character is like the go-between between the two of them. He's the only one that can talk to either of them or DeBergie. Like they're the peacemakers. No, Harry Shearer's character goes to law school and he's the only one who comes out and he's clean shaven with short hair wearing a business suit coming out and trying to perform a rock rock music. He's now the negotiator. See, I could see this as like a, a web series of for, you know, maybe little segments on like, where are they now kind of things. <laughs> I know the British office kind of did a version of that that, that worked pretty well. So that that I could see. I'm not sure how they're going to make, you know, 90 minutes out of this, but it'll be interesting. Any remaining thoughts for the week? Looking forward to my hat. And I'll send you guys a picture of how ridiculous it looks on me. <laughs> Good. So we can throw it up on our Instagram. Yeah. So, well, as always, we have a great time with you here, Shane. And thank you very much, of course, for being here now five times. We know that that is quite a commitment, I think. Your first appearance would have been in fall of 22, so it's it's spread across about, about 18 months or so. Wow, yeah, sounds right. So, Shane, I will say that being an insomniac myself, fall asleep many times with a pillow speaker and my phone going, so I'll play a podcast. So I will say that I've listened to your podcast probably each one about four or five times because oh, wow. I'll get about 15 minutes or 10 minutes in and fall asleep <laughs> Pass and out. then we'll have to go back and start again and listen. Cause I kind of, you know, remember where I was. And so you have a lot of interesting guests. I'm kind of baffled as to how you can find so many different people who are so interesting and, um, do enjoy your show and uh, hope you continue your success as well. 
Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I don't know if it's the the best uh, endorsement that we make you fall asleep within 15 minutes, but I'm glad that we can help. And well, but uh, it's yeah, the, the fact that I go back <laughs> and listen to it multiple times in order to get that, the whole show in. There we go. The and it that, juices uh, the numbers. Yeah, yeah, really. Keep keep listening and and then re-downloading that episode. But yeah, we the guests are mostly comedians. I've done stand-up comedy for a long time, and so they're all comedians that I've worked with. But yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. Yeah, so just before we go, uh, if you wanted to plug anything or have what's going on in your life, uh, let the audience know. Oh, wow. Well, we just hit not to, I, I don't know, I didn't sound terrible, but I've been just enjoying this. It's exciting for us. We hit a million downloads last week. So that was wow. a big, um, awesome. a big milestone for us. And it was very exciting. And so, yeah, we've been kind of celebrating that. Like, it just feels like we can take a little victory lap. Like we've, you know, we all this hard work feels like it's paid off a little bit. And, um, the newest episode is our most downloaded ever. So it's just been nice to see it kind of continue. Uh, the newest episode is on famous prison breaks the most recent one before that was, I think, one of my favorite episodes we've ever done on black holes. That was really interesting. So yeah, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're an insomniac and or just like interesting facts, uh, come over and check it out. If you want black holes, I have a few cars that I've owned that. Uh, yeah. that. <laughs> I'm unfortunately familiar with that uh, phenomenon. All right. Well, that will do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. And the winner is. Next week, we're taking a break from our regular episodes to bring you our fourth annual Oscars preview. We will be giving you our predictions for every category as well as our personal take on each category, finishing up with our best picture rankings and our annual Oscars bad movie bet. It's going to be another fun one, so make sure you are subscribed to our feed next week to get that episode wherever you get your podcasts. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewrindyduckinstudios.com or at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on YouTube, Instagram, X, Letterboxd, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 